Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the September 1999 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. The title of the article is The First Inauguration of George Washington, A Great Moment in American and Masonic History by John D. Melius, 33rd Degree. The inauguration of George Washington as our first president embodied a fulfillment of Masonic and American ideals. As Americans and as Masons, We have all heard details, read stories, or seen illustrations about George Washington, some clearly mythic and hard to believe. One, for instance, is the incredible popularity enjoyed by Washington throughout his life. These days, when a 60% public approval rating is seldom within the grasp of any public figure, Washington was revered by nearly 100% of all Americans. In addition, his reputation had spread worldwide, and he was widely admired as a paragon of noble character and civic service. Nowhere was this more evident than at his inauguration as our nation's first president. Imagine the situation. On April 30, 1789, when Washington was sworn in as Chief Executive and Commander-in-Chief of the United States, our country had just emerged from the trauma and upheaval of the American Revolution. The Continental Congress, despite heated disputes on nearly every subject, still elected Washington as America's first president without a single dissenting vote. Many books written at the time lavished praise on Washington for the qualities he incorporated in his family, religious, military, and civic life. Brother Washington's first inaugural speech was only six minutes long, the shortest in history, yet it exemplifies his humble reluctance to accept so high an office. At the same time, it shows his determination to serve the new country to the best of his ability. I am convinced the philosophical concepts revealed to Washington during his youthful initiation into masonry served him well during this period of time and throughout his life. During this bicentennial year of his passing on December 14, 1799, it is appropriate that we remember his legacy to our nation by celebrating the moment in history when he assumed for the first time the most important office the American people can offer. Thus, the Supreme Council commissioned me to paint George Washington's inauguration as first president of the United States, April 30, 1789. This is a companion piece to an earlier painting, George Washington laying the cornerstone of the United States Capitol, September 18, 1793. I completed the latter painting for the Supreme Council 33rd degree in 1993 to commemorate the bicentennial of that great event. Both paintings now hang in the George Washington Memorial Banquet Hall in the House of the Temple in Washington, D.C. In creating the inauguration painting, I placed the viewer on the balcony as a close witness of this momentous occasion. There is a well-documented evidence from the time that describes the presence of everyone portrayed in this painting, except for the two women located on the left of the painting. I chose to place these women there because the inspiration for the composition of this painting was derived from an etching dated 1805, the earliest illustration of the event I found. 
The 1805 etching shows a woman seated on the balcony, and on further research, I discovered that women were often at these types of events without being recognized in written records. The actual size and scale of the balcony are derived from many sketches of Federal Hall in New York City, where the inauguration took place, and from the drawing of the wrought iron fence from the blacksmith who fabricated it. The architecture seen from the balcony is distinctly Dutch because Federal Hall District of New York City, first called New Amsterdam, was built by the Dutch. If you look closely at the window in the building across from Federal Hall, you will see a Revolutionary War veteran celebrating this great occasion. He represents the throngs of people from all walks of life, rich and poor, Native American, European, American military and Revolutionary War veterans, who wildly celebrated this inauguration as a great victory for America and humankind. Although I would have enjoyed showing the viewer this interesting crowd of early Americans in the painting, I opted to focus on the historical figures participating in the ceremony. Their images, unfortunately, block our view of the people below. The portraits of the twelve men, eight of whom were Masons, were painted from historical portraits of these men. They have been transposed to make them appear natural within the setting of this ceremony. From left to right they are Frederick William von Steuben, a Mason, was an army officer and aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great of Prussia. Von Steuben became a major general during the Revolution and was known as the drill master of the Continental Army. John Jay, right and in the foreground, then Secretary of State, later became a Supreme Court Justice. John Adams was the first Vice President and became the second President of the United States. Henry Lee, a Mason, was known as Light Horse Harry Lee because of his brilliant cavalry operations in the Revolutionary War. He was also the father of General Robert E. Lee. Robert R. Livingston, a Mason, was Chancellor of the State of New York and Grand Master of New York Masons from 1784 to 1800. He is to Lee's right by the railing. Samuel Otis, Secretary of the Senate, holds the Bible from St. John's Lodge No. 1, New York City. George Washington, a Mason, stands with his right hand placed on the Bible. Morgan Lewis, a Mason, was Grand Marshal during this ceremony and later became a Major General in the War of 1812. He was elected Grand Master of New York Masons in 1830. Frederick A.C. Muhlenberg, a Mason, appears in a gold-colored coat. Born in Pennsylvania, he was educated in Germany as a Lutheran clergyman and was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. Arthur St. Clair, a Mason, is dressed in military uniform. He was born in Scotland and came to America with the British Army in 1757, only to become a Major General in the Continental Army. At the time of the inauguration, he was the Governor of the Northwest Territory. George Clinton, next to St. Clair, was Governor of New York at the time of the inauguration. Henry Knox, a Mason, was a close advisor to Washington and a Major General and Chief of Artillery in the Revolutionary Army. He is to the far right in the painting and was Secretary of War at the time of Washington's first inauguration. George Washington became the first president with the same reluctance and timidity that many Masons experience as they take on responsibilities within Masonry. But as he solemnly and sincerely swore the oath of office and kissed the Holy Bible on the historic day of his inaugurations, his feelings expressed by a passage from his inaugural speech characterized this great man and Mason. There is no truth more thoroughly established than that there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage. Clearly, when George Washington was unanimously elected the first president of the United States, the American people were recognizing in him an embodiment of great American and Masonic ideals.
following article is from the February 2000 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. The article is titled, George Washington, A New Look at an Old Hero, by James C. Rees, 32nd Degree. The true Washington is being lost to future generations. No one deserves our gratitude, our praise, our deepest respect more than George Washington. As the great orator Edward Everett said, the character, the counsels, the example of our dear Washington will guide us through the doubts and the difficulties that beset us. They will guide our children and our children's children in the paths of prosperity and peace. But perhaps today we should ask ourselves if it is still true that the character of George Washington is guiding our children and our children's children. Near to the 1999 bicentennial of his passing, is Washington still held up as a meaningful role model, as an example for new generations to follow? The evidence isn't very promising. George Washington may be the most familiar of all historical figures, but the sad fact is the average American today seems to know next to nothing about the man behind the myth. American history in general has been short-shrifted in the classroom, and surveys reveal that educators themselves agree the problem is serious. Teachers estimate that only one student in ten can be considered proficient in high school history upon graduation, and one of four Americans cannot name whose picture is on the dollar bill. We really shouldn't be surprised by this dramatic decline in knowledge. The fourth grade history textbook used in public school system in Richmond, Virginia in the early 1960s included ten times more coverage of Washington than the textbook used in that very same classroom today. And I truly believe that this disconnect from history, this ignorance of the Founding Fathers, has affected our children in other incredibly important ways. In another survey of high school students, 90% admitted that they lied to their parents, 70% admitted to cheating on an exam, and almost 50% to stealing from a store. Of course, times change, and our daily lives are very different from those in the 18th century, but the most important things about our nation and its people should not change. The character and principles of our great country, all of which are embodied by a single man, George Washington, should remain steadfast. As author James Flexner has noted, Washington was more than a military leader. He was the eagle, the standard, the flag, the living symbol of the cause. When George Washington died in 1799, John Marshall mourned, Our Washington is no more, the hero, the sage, and the patriot of America. The man on whom, in times of danger, every eye was turned and all hopes were placed, lives now only in his own great actions and in the hearts of an affectionate people. Between December 14, 1799, the day that Washington died, <clears throat> and February 22, 1800, the entire nation went into mourning. Some 350 funeral eulogies were delivered from Maine to Georgia. In an age like today, when legislators and citizens, though finally united by a single government, disagree on countless points, virtually everyone agreed the greatness of Washington and the greatness of America were one and the same. This public celebration of Washington's character continued for the next 140 years. His birthday became not just a national holiday, but a time for parades, sermons, and family gatherings where the conversations actually focused on the leadership of this great man. In 1839, which marked the 150th anniversary of Washington's inauguration as president, among the tributes was a two-hour speech by John Quincy Adams and the reading of an original poem by the famous poet William Cullen Bryant. At the 1889 Centennial Gala in New York City, President Benjamin Harrison was honored to portray George Washington as the oath of office was reenacted near Federal Hall. There were more than a million people in attendance, far more than attended the original ceremony in 1789. 
When the bicentennial of Washington's birth was celebrated in 1932, patriotic events went on for months, and virtually every classroom in America was supplied by the government with a framed portrait of George Washington. For generations, every United States president felt that it was an honor to visit Mount Vernon. Teddy Roosevelt and his family rode to Mount Vernon on horseback, a trip that took several hours on many occasions. When the 100th anniversary of Washington's death was commemorated in 1899, President McKinley was the keynote speaker. Today, I'm sad to say that presidents turned down Mount Vernon's invitations with remarkable frequency. Our research seems to indicate that of the last four presidents, two have never stepped foot on Mount Vernon soil, despite the fact that the presidential helicopter has reduced the traveling time to less than 10 minutes. Although we continue to welcome foreign prime ministers and presidents, and even the Queen of England, it has been 17 years since a sitting president has participated in an official function at Mount Vernon. I am afraid that too many of our leaders, as well as our children, think of Washington as just another icon. He's great, of course, but they think he's also, well, kind of boring. That's because people today too often think of Washington as the sour-looking elder statesman depicted in the Gilbert Stuart painting, the one you see every time you use a dollar bill. Washington and Stuart never got along. They were like oil and water, and this painting is the best example in history of an artist's revenge. In the 18th century, people looked at Washington in a different light. He was not just powerful, he was also fascinating, and he was considered absolutely incomparable to the other founding fathers. As scholar Gary Wills notes, to them, Washington was always the most interesting man in the room, even when the other men in the room were Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. For instance, Washington was perhaps the foremost farmer in America. He invented his own plow. He was one of the first to stop growing tobacco because it depleted the soil of nutrients. He introduced the mule in America. He designed an amazing 16-sided barn to revolutionize the processing of wheat, and he created a terrific seven-year plan for crop rotations. As an entrepreneur, Washington had few equals. He owned 70,000 acres of land in what would today be seven different states. He created his own quarry operation, and he built a four-story gristmill to process not only his wheat, but also that of his neighbors. Next to the gristmill, he naturally built a distillery where thousands of gallons of liquor were purchased by prominent families from miles around. And because he was an exceptionally frugal man, Washington used the byproducts of his distillery to feed his Osabaugh Island hogs. Understandably, they always had smiles on their faces. Yet Washington's most profitable business of all was fishing. For a brief five-week period each spring, he rented additional boats and borrowed additional hands to net more than 1.3 million herring, which he salted in barrels and shipped to cities near and far. Where Washington found the time to create and manage these businesses is still a mystery, because so much of his life was spent on the battlefield. At the onset of the French and Indian War, Washington led the Virginia militia as it joined General Braddock's ill-fated mission to the Monongahela. This was by no means a shining moment in Washington's career. Braddock's forces were severely defeated. The general himself was mortally wounded, yet when General Braddock fell, the men naturally turned to George Washington, who organized the retreat and kept the army from disbanding. By the end of the battle, four bullet holes were in his coat, and he was on his third horse, but Washington was an unquestionable hero, even in defeat. He was almost immediately appointed a colonel and given complete command of the Virginia Regiment, but what is truly amazing about this episode in Washington's life is his age. He was just 23 years old. I cannot imagine what qualities a 23-year-old could possess to win such confidence and respect from his older comrades. 
Scholars generally agree the most critical moment of Washington's military career came not during the war itself, but at the close of the Revolutionary War. It is at this juncture that Washington most clearly separates himself from the others and where his leadership moves to a truly higher plane. Unlike Julius Caesar, Oliver Cromwell, Napoleon Bonaparte, and many other victorious military leaders, Washington willingly and unconditionally surrendered his power just when it reached its apex, when the world expected Washington to assume his rightful place as the ruler of a new nation, he laid down his sword and took up his plow. Today we take our freedom so much for granted and accept democracy as so natural, so right, that it is hard to imagine the importance of Washington's voluntary retirement. But in 1783 it was an earth-shattering event. The highly skeptical King George III, perhaps confident that Washington's retirement was some sort of scam, predicted that if the commander-in-chief gives up all power and returns to his farm, it will be the greatest man in the world. For once, George III was right. Just a few years later, when Napoleon was deep in exile, totally defeated and forlorn, he lamented, they expected me to be another Washington. It was as if the people of France had expected the impossible. How could anyone live up to Washington's standards? High standards, yes, but Washington was by no means perfect. He had a tumultuous temper, he wasn't a terribly good speaker, and if you read his thousands of letters, you'll discover that a sense of humor doesn't exactly pop out on every page. But Washington was creative, energetic, courageous, dignified, courteous, and modest to a fault. And most of all, his character was sterling. He possessed an unflinching belief in freedom, justice, and the principles upon which our nation was founded. In every aspect of his incredibly busy life, George Washington was virtuous, and perhaps never in the history of the world has a single man been admired by so many. One newspaper writer in the 18th century noted that if George Washington stood for president, he would receive every single vote. He didn't mean every electoral vote, which Washington did indeed receive, but the vote of every single citizen. This is the man who I am so afraid is being lost to future generations. Today, however, there is a ray of hope that the tide can still be turned. During this bicentennial year of Washington's passing, I will make brief remarks to about 75 different groups and assemblies, and there is no doubt in my mind that this will be the largest one of them all. And this, as it should be, because of all the organizations Washington participated in during his long and illustrious life, I honestly believe he was most personally involved and committed to Freemasonry. Having lost his father when he was just 11 years old, Washington was drawn to this fraternity of civic-minded men, who followed a steadfast philosophy focusing on moral virtue and the giving of assistance to all brothers in need. He served as the first master of Lodge Number 22 in Alexandria, and his dedication to Freemasonry was spotlighted in 1793 when he presided at a Masonic ceremony to sit the cornerstone for the United States Capitol. And on December 18, 1799, his fellow Masonic brothers conducted Washington's memorial service at Mount Vernon. This year, 1999, we will reenact Washington's funeral exactly 200 years later, and once again, Masons will be leading the way. It's the way George Washington would have wanted it to be. I want to thank all Freemasons from the bottom of my heart for all you continue to do as good members of the craft to perpetuate the spirit of Washington. I will conclude with the words of John Adams, Daniel Webster, Abraham Lincoln, and Henry Lee. Our second president, John Adams, said, Washington's example is complete, and it will teach wisdom and virtue to magistrates, citizens, and men, not only in the present age, but in future generations. The famous orator Daniel Webster said, America has furnished to the world the character of Washington, 
and if our American institutions had done nothing else, that alone would have entitled them to, them to the respect of mankind. Abraham Lincoln, perhaps America's second most respected president, said, Washington is the mightiest name of earth. To add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. Let none attempt it. In solemn awe we pronounce the name, and in its naked deathless splendor leave it shining on. And finally, the great southern gentleman and soldier, Henry Lighthouse Harry Lee, said, Vice shudders in his presence, and virtue always feels his fostering hand, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. The following article is from the August 1992 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction. Brother George Washington, Separating the Mason from the Monument, written by Stephen E. Patrick. In the book George Washington, Man and Monument, Marcus Cunliffe observes, Washington has become entombed in his own myth, a metaphorical Washington monument that hides from us the lineaments of a real man. Similarly, in the Masonic fraternity, the impulse has been to make Brother Washington the very embodiment of all that is perfect in Freemasonry in America, a metaphorical Washington Masonic National Memorial, if you will. Revered as a giant among men long before his death, the figure of George Washington did not stand a chance of warding off the aggrandizing hero worship that evolved around him. Washington quickly emerged in the American conscience, if not the world over, as a noble, if somewhat chilly, personage wrought from marble or bronze. The Masonic fraternity responded similarly by hailing our illustrious brother Washington and dedicating books and speeches to him 20 years before his death. By the Victorian era, lithographers were growing wealthy painting myriad compositions which presented Washington the Freemason. To the 19th century brethren, Washington was a familiar though somewhat mythical supermason who had somehow moved into a fantastical Masonic dream world. The inherent problem that results from such a situation is when the monumental hero is discovered to be less than perfect, in essence, a real man. Washington was the subject of this kind of scrutiny in his later years, and evidence suggests he was as uncomfortable with his critics then as we are today in hearing strident criticism of Washington. Still, it is always safest to try to chip away the great marble monolithic Washington we all developed in our imaginations as schoolchildren and attempt to learn about the person behind the publicity. Separating Washington the man from Washington the myth is extremely difficult. In some ways, we understand very little about Washington, which may seem hard to believe because few historical American figures have left as great a documented life as Washington, and yet the ponderous volumes of his diaries, letters, memoranda, speeches, and account books only serve to make us ask more questions about him. Discerning the real role of Freemasonry in Washington's life from that of historical elaboration has been a problem. One such difficulty arose shortly before Washington's death during a brief period of anti-Masonry in the United States, which stemmed from the accounts blaming the French Revolution on Freemasons. When confronted by a minister named G.W. Snyder on this matter, Washington strongly defended the Masonic Order. However, in an attempt to clarify a notion that he was Grand Master of Masons in America, Washington responded to Snyder, saying, I preside over none, nor have I been in a lodge more than once or twice within the last thirty years. Anti-Masonic writers have repeatedly drawn attention to that sentence for almost two hundred years in an attempt to discredit the fraternity. 
The truth was that Washington's Masonic activities were sporadic. His role as master of Alexandria Lodge in 1788 and 1789 was largely honorary. The Lodge records indicate he was not in attendance during any of that term, though some Masonic historians have tried to assert he was. However, we must not lose sight of the tremendous demands on Washington's time during that period, including his first term as President of the United States, a post which took him to New York City where the federal government was located at that time. Washington categorically refused all requests for his attention other than government affairs with two exceptions, the Order of the Cincinnati, a fraternity of Revolutionary War officers, and the Order of Freemasons. We need to see Washington as a Freemason who was not the mythical, divinely inspired leader depicted by a Victorian artist, nor the statuesque, worshipful master seen in one of the more famous representations. However, Washington's actual career and capability served to illustrate what an exemplary figure he really was. If some claim that Washington joined the Masons as a youth because he saw the craft as a way to network and climb socially, then none can deny that he subsequently grew in maturity and stature. Brother Washington was an excellent role model for all Masons, but we must resist the urge to place him too high on a pedestal. The flesh and blood man is a more useful role model than the marble monument. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.